Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit eagledrivebaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Ephesians chapter 4, and really this whole book, once I find Ephesians, this whole book is about our identity. And as I've said throughout this whole series, I think many, many individuals today have an identity crisis. We've talked about that. We've referenced that the past year. And really, many Christians have an identity crisis. And what I mean by that is they don't understand who they are. And as we've gone through this, uh, this, this section here in chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through 24, as we hit on the past couple weeks, we're all about taking off the grave clothes. Remember, once you're saved, you are no longer part of that old nature. And really what we're referencing is there's a difference between the old man and the new man, or at least there should be, right? Uh, there should be a difference in who we were versus who we are. And I think a lot of times, I've been thinking a lot about this the past several days, I think a lot of times we become very content in our Christian lives, do we not? How many would agree with that? What I mean is that uh, we're different than what we were, and we're like, man, that's great. I'm not who I was, so that's, it's all good. And then we tend to slide and coast in our Christian lives. But does God want his children to just coast through life? No, he always wants us to continue to grow. So we should always be trying to grow, to try to better ourselves. And it's not like, well, I'm better than what I was, so it's all good. No, we should always be striving to be better. And one of the things I was talking about in the past couple lessons was, again, since we're different, we look different, right? So I think I had uh, Michael just kind of uh, go online and try to pull up some old pictures from the past from people. I think he only did like four or five. So he's got some old pictures of the past, and he should have done everyone, but I don't think he had time to do it all. And I guess the goal is just a quick game to kind of guess who these people are, right? Is that what it is? Okay, so go ahead and pop up the first one. All right, who is that guy? Does anyone know? I know it's hard to see. This guy is sitting here, right here in the middle. I'm kind of pointing at him. Anybody know who it is? Yeah. Who? Billy. It's Billy. <laughs> Billy didn't even know that was him. <laughs> I know it's hard to see. <laughs> Love the short shorts. This is pretty sweet. They're coming back in style, sadly. <laughs> Not for me, though. Not for me. <laughs> uh, never mind. Let's just go on. <laughs> We got people back there raising their hands. <laughs> I'm glad you know that. <laughs> who, who is it all? Marissa, Venetia, Amber, Virginia, Tiffany, Jeremy. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, yeah, I can see the one in the boy outfit. So, <laughs> Good. all right, next one. Yeah, Mike and Jill Reno. He's not here tonight. That's why we had to put it on there. I think he needs to grow his hair out like that again. That's pretty sweet. All right, we have any more? One more. One more. Best one yet. Whoa, who is that young kid in the red? It's Amanda. Very good. Very good. I don't know why Michael didn't put one of himself, especially like pre-beard. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't pretty. <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter 4, let's go ahead and uh, read verses 25 through 32 tonight. That's where we're going to be, verse 25 through 32. Again, verse 17 through 24 was all about uh, taking off the grave clothes, understanding that we're, uh, if you're a child of God, you're saved. You shouldn't live like you're not saved. You shouldn't live like a pagan, as Paul referenced. You should live like a believer. And then verse 25 through 32 is really about making the application uh, to this passage. So go ahead and follow along with me in your Bibles. Wherefore, putting away lying, this gets to the applicable, applicable part of this passage. Uh, and it really hits deep tonight, so just hang on. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, 
that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we continue to walk through this study of this great book. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand what our identity is when we are saved, when we are a child of God, and how we should live out our identity, and how understanding who we are should engage us to live as a child of God, to live as a Christian. And Lord, I pray that as we look specifically at these five sins that Paul addresses to the church here at Ephesus, that there are certain things in our life that we probably struggle with. And many of us in here probably struggle with some of these sins. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight to not get all mad when it's talked about, but help us understand that it's there for our betterment and not for our detriment. Try to encourage us to be a better believer, a better child of God, and be who you want us to be. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, if you're saved, you have a new identity. You're no longer who you were. So you've become part of Christ. This new lifestyle involves replacing sinful habits with holy, righteous habits. And in Ephesians, in the latter specific portion that we're going to be hitting on tonight, Paul deals with five sins that the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, struggle with. And really, these are sins that many of us struggle with as well today. And in each of these, he talks about the negative, the sin, but then he gives a positive action step in order to how to overcome that sin. And here's a key truth in this, in this whole lesson tonight. Holiness is not just about saying no to sin. It's very easy for us to say no to sin. It's not just about that. It's also about saying yes to God. And that's vitally important. We don't just say no to sin, but we also must say yes to God. And so let's go ahead and dig in. First of all, we're talking about our new identity, and this is how we must live. And the very first thing that Paul references is this. Replace lying with truth replace lying with the truth. Now, I think all of us understand what a lie is, right? Anybody not understand what a lie is? I'm sure all of us that have kids know what lying is because our kids do it continually, right? Uh, sometimes our spouses do it continually. I'm not referencing anyone in here tonight, but that happens at times in our lives. And as a Christian, as a child of God, we should replace lying because that is part of that sinful old nature with the truth. Again, a lie is a statement that is contrary to the fact, spoken with the intent to deceive. Now, let me ask again, how many have ever lied? Raise your hand, you liars. Thank you. Appreciate it. You know, in thinking of lying, I had to, you know, kind of come up with a few jokes. Do we have any attorneys in here tonight? Any attorneys? All right. Bonnie is, but she's not here, so I can use this. So I had to come up with, you know, a good joke, and I found a good joke, and a lot of times when you think of lying, you think of attorneys. Bonnie's not a liar, of course. But um, I found a good one, and I thought, I thought it was good. It probably isn't. But anyway, how does an attorney sleep? How does an attorney sleep? Anybody? They lie on one side, then lie on the other. Boom. <laughs> you know, that was good. Anyway. <laughs> now, I know. In our lying, in our lying, sometimes... We like to think because we're lying, we're actually helping someone else. We're actually protecting someone when we lie. And I know I'm going to blow you away with the statement here, but is a lie the truth? No, it's not. So is Jesus Christ a liar? No, no he's not. Now, the new man is supposed to be like Christ, right? Yes, you are. The more you interact and more you engage, the better this goes. Yes, we are supposed to be like Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is not a liar. He is full of truth. Who is a liar, a deceiver? The devil, Satan, yes, exactly. So the goal of the Christian life is to imitate Jesus Christ, right? To be like him, to be more like him. So when we lie, who are we imitating? Satan, the devil. When we tell the truth, who are we imitating? Jesus Christ. So the new nature, this is what Paul is saying. The new nature is about imitating Christ. Christ is not a liar. Christ is full of truth. He is all truth. And when lying is so prevalent in our society, as Christians more than ever, we need to be known for those that 
tell the truth, know the truth, speak the truth, right? But how often in our lives are we more known for lying? Well, I'm just bending the truth. Well, is bending the truth a lie? Yes, it's still a lie. You know, we like to, to say all these different things and, and, you know, try to justify our actions, but a lie is a lie is a lie. It's plain and simple. It is not the truth. You know, there's some statistics online, and just read a couple of them quickly. Um, uh, who gets lied to the most? Uh, four things. They say parents get lied to 80, 86% of the time. Friends get lied to 75% of the time. Siblings, 73%. And spouses, 69% of the time. Uh, a couple other things. Common reasons for lying. We lie to save face. We lie to shift blame. We lie to avoid confrontation, to get our way, sometimes to be nice, uh, lying to make ourselves feel better. And then a couple other things. The average child begins to lie between the age of two and three. I know that's true because Noah is in between that age. Anyway, and then this was interesting. When we meet someone new, the average person will lie two to three times in 10 minutes. Kind of crazy, kind of astounding. Now you guys can all think about that when you meet someone new. But the average person lies two to three times in the first 10 minutes of meeting something new. And they say most people lie about four times a day, which when you add it up, it averages about to 1,460 lies every year. That's a lot, isn't it? And then this is kind of a staggering thought. It's not really, but I guess it is. Men lie on average six times a day. Women lie on average... 30, no, three times a day. <laughs> See, I just lied about that. Uh, men lie on average six times a day, women three times a day. And there's a lot of other stacks, or stats and, and whatever facts about that. But the truth is, a lot of people lie. All people lie, right? But as a Christian, as a child of God, should we be known for someone that tells the truth or someone that, t- that lies? Someone that tells the truth. And again, I'm joking around with it a little bit, but that's what Paul is trying to get across here where he says, wherefore, putting away. To put away something means what? To put away. <laughs> it's not part of you anymore. If I'm going to put something away, I don't have it anymore, right? It's somewhere else. So what he's referencing is putting away, putting away, get rid of it. That's the old man. Put away lying and replace it with the truth. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one of another. What Paul is doing here is he is referencing an Old Testament passage. In Zechariah 8.16, the Bible says, these are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Here's the simple truth of this point. The old man lies, the new man tells the truth. The old man lies, the new man tells the truth. And as we've referenced the past several weeks, there is a constant struggle and there will be a continual struggle until we go to heaven, until Christ calls us back with the old man, with the new man, because sin is part of our nature. But the new man tells the truth. The motive for doing this is because, listen, we are members one of another. Look what it says at the end of verse 25. For we are members one of another. This is talking about being part of that family of God as he referenced earlier in chapter 4, where we're all one, we're all part of the body. Look, we cannot build each other up apart from the truth. Can a, uh, a church be built up on lies? No, a church is tore down by lies. So if we are to build one another up as members of the body of Christ, how can we build each other up if we're constantly lying? We can't. We can't. And again, it's easy to justify our actions, right? It's very easy to justify why we lie. Well, I'm doing it because of this. But in God's eyes, is he like, it's okay. It's no big deal. Do you think God treats it like that? No. Because sin is sin to God. And that's what we must understand. And one of the things God hates in Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 6, it talks about lying lips. I mean, it specifically said these six things that God hates. Yea, seven are abomination to him. And one of the very first things is lying lips. So it's pretty serious. Hate is a strong word, is it not? So when we reference that and we hear that God hates it, uh, if, if God hates it, should we do it? No. And again, I, I know we struggle with it. I'm not excusing it. But it's that battle of the old nature, that old flesh. Let me try to illustrate it a little bit more. 
how it hurts other people and other members. You know, if I have an iron plugged in, you know, something you iron your clothes with, and, and I obviously I know it's hot, but my eye says to my hand, it's not hot. But I go ahead and touch it, what's going to happen? It's going to burn me, right? Same thing is true as members of the body, we are all connected. So when one man lies, does it just affect them? No, it affects all of us. It affects all the members together. So we have to replace lying with the truth. So let me ask this, and I need some interaction here tonight. How do, as Christians, we get in the habit of telling the truth? How do we get in the habit of telling the truth as Christians? But Alan? By telling the truth? Let me just do it. Yeah, it, it is fairly simple, right? We get in the habit of doing something by what? Doing it. By putting it into place. Practicing, yes, exactly. Now, let me ask this. We've kind of referenced this already, but what examples are there maybe of how Christians can bend the truth? Anybody have any example you want to share? Clarissa? <laughs> Your child isn't always fabulous. No. <laughs> that, that's a great point. That's a great point. What else? What else? What? I would be fired if I told you. <laughs> You're never mind. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Uh, what else? What are some other examples of maybe how we bend the truth? Anyone? Oh, yeah, exactly. Why do we do that, Susan? Why do you do that? They don't care. I'm sorry, I'm just getting a drink of water. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. You know, it's, it's just that stock answer. Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. When you're probably not good. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes we're afraid of how people would react or whatever, like, I think, to it sometimes, if we actually did tell them the truth. That's a noble thought. You should do that. You know, on Sunday morning, when people ask you how you are, <laughs> well, let me tell you there, Pastor. <laughs> All right, I'm never talking to you again. But, yeah, it's, it's a good point. What else? What are some other ways that we bend the truth? Any, anyone else? It's so good to see you. I can't stand you. Amanda never says that. She's referencing other people. Yeah, exactly. Are you saying that? Oh, let's just park it here for a while, okay? We're getting deep. No, it's it's good. No, that's that is good. What else? Maybe one or two more examples, then we will move on. I promise. Anyone else? I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying. That's good. Especially as Christians, yeah, I'll be praying for you, and we have no intention of praying, but we just say it, because it's the Christian thing to say, right? Well, if you say something, you should actually back it up and actually do it. Now, get this, and we'll move on. Falsehood or lying stifles unity. We've been talking about unity for the past month, two months, in chapter four. Falsehood stifles unity, but truth strengthens unity. So if we want to be a church and believers that are unified, we have to be known for the truth. And sometimes the truth is hard to take. But even when you're talking to a friend, if you know that they're living in sin, they're doing wrong, as a friend, should you try to help them, warn them? Yes, you should. But how often do we not say anything? I don't want to ruffle their feathers. I don't want to say anything because they might get offended. That doesn't help. So in a sense, because you're not going to them and helping them with the struggle, with the situation that they're having in life, you're stifling unity instead of strengthening it. And that's what happens too often in churches. So the first thing Paul says and addresses is replace lying with the truth. He continues on verse 26 and 27. Now this is a tough one for many of us. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. 
Be angry and sin not, or be angry but don't sin. You know, there is a good type of anger. It's what we call holy anger or righteous anger. This is kind of talking about in reference to uh, biblical references when Jesus overdrove the money changers in the temple. He was righteously mad because they were turning his house into a house of uh, thieves and extortioners and all that, uh, that thing. You know, it, it's, it's okay for Christians to get upset when there is sin prevalent, right? It's okay when we see something wrong in society to get mad, to get upset. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to be angry and then sin. And that's, that's a hard thing in our lives because of that old nature and, and sin still being in us. It's hard not to sin sometimes, right? Sometimes you get mad at your kids because they disobeyed you. Okay, that might be a righteous anger, but instead of just putting it down, what do you do? You yell at them. <laughs> Or sometimes people have done worse. They've allowed their anger to stir up, to fester up. And it causes us to sin. Look, if we're indifferent towards injustice, then evil will prevail. And as a Christian, we should hate the sins that God hates. Verse 31, Paul mentions unrighteous anger. Where he talks about uh, it's how it's self-defensive. It's out of control. It leads to murder and jealousy and envy and many other things. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But the key in anger is settling the matter quickly, before it boils up, before it overflows. And the qualification to keep ourself under control, our anger under control, is not sinning. And here's what Paul is saying. Don't let it fester up inside of you. Resolve it quickly. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. And I was reading one of my commentaries, and they said, this doesn't mean move to Alaska and be an Eskimo where, you know, the sun never goes down at certain times of the year. Well, I'm just going to stay there so I can be mad all the time. They're kind of making a funny little illustration there. That's not what it's saying. Try to resolve the matter quickly. Horace once said, anger is momentary insanity. It's like the woman who tried to defend her bad temper by saying, I explode, but then it's all over with. But then her friend replied, well, so does a shotgun, but look at the damage left behind. And we have to understand that, that, okay, we might get angry, but if we allow our anger to fester up, even though it might be momentary insanity, there's still devastation, right? So that's what Paul is saying. Hey, the old man is going to get angry and allow it to just fester up and allow you to sin. But as a believer, be angry, get angry for, for righteous reasons, but don't sin, and don't give the devil an opportunity to take your anger and allow it to damage those in your path. Even good anger that's not dealt with can turn into bitterness. Because there's been times in my life as a pastor, as a Christian, where people have, have sinned, have done wrong, and I was righteously angry at the situation. But instead of just settling in my heart and settling it with God, I let it build up. And I didn't necessarily do anything to them, but you know what it caused in my life? Bitterness. So even good anger can turn into bitterness if not dealt with. Now let me ask you a question. It gets personal again. When are you most angry? When are you most angry? When you're what? You're wrong. When you're wronged? Okay. What else? You're stressed out? What else? You're driving? <laughs> a lot of people in here. <laughs> What else? That's good. When are you most angry? Nobody ever gets angry? Someone does something to your children? As a parent, that happens a lot of times. Yes. What else? When are we most angry? Don't get our way? That's really good. Michael, I see that hand. Behind a slow walker. Does that happen to you this week? Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. So what, what do you think the secret is to controlling your anger? That's good. Getting your eyes off yourself. So if you get your eyes off yourself, who should you focus on? Others and Christ. Yeah, Christ and others, importantly. That's very good. So a secret to controlling your anger is to not, one, Focus on yourself, focus on your situation, focus on your circumstance, but immediately direct your attention to God. And there's many times where we do that, right? Where we realize that, okay, I'm getting mad 
and I need to stop this, so I'm going to start quoting Scripture. That helps. It really does. That's why the Bible says, hide God's Word in your heart. Why? You're not going to sin against God. But how often do we hide God's Word in our heart? Well, I come to church. That's enough. No, no, no. It's important to be in your Bible, to know what the Bible says, so that when, that, when those things happen and those actions happen and those feelings happen, we can repress them and get rid of them so that they don't stir up and, and cause us to sin. Look, the devil's work is to accuse and divide the family of God. His work is to sow discord among them. When we harbor anger in our heart, we do the devil's work for him. And that's what these verses are saying. Verse 26, be angry and sin not. Let the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Don't allow the devil to have a foothold in your life, in your family. And this causes a lot of footholds in families, especially when anger happens. And instead of pushing it down and asking God to forgive us and, and take it away, we let it fester up. And then all of a sudden it boils over, it explodes. And then you got the devastation behind. Just like a volcano that erupts, you've got a lot of devastation to clean up. Third thing. Replace stealing with work and giving. Verse 28. Replace stealing with work and giving. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor or work, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, this is very, very, very important. Now, in this society, Paul is specifically talking about those that literally did have a theft problem. In this society... A lot of times before they came to Christ, and what he's referencing is the uh, church at Ephesus here, the Ephesians here in Asia Minor, where many of them were thieves. They stole. They didn't work an honest day's labor, and they, they stole. So he's saying, hey, if you're a child of God, you don't act like that anymore. You don't steal anymore. That's not what you should do. The word steal means to cheat, to take wrongfully from another person, either legally or illegally. Now, just like these other two that we reference, Christians can sometimes be very horrible about this one. And there's a lot of applications we, make, we can make about this, but we got to think about in stealing how we steal from God what rightfully belongs to Him. Not giving your tithes. Not giving your tithes. That's one great example. And I've talked with many people about that, and honestly, I, I've said this before. That is one of the things that I hate to preach on more than anything as a pastor. I'll preach on hard sin every day of the week. I hate to preach on money because I know there's an issue with a lot of people with money, isn't there? Because money is a big deal. And I was reading something, one of my devotions today, and I can't remember who said it, but they said a lot of times the last part of a Christian to be converted is their wallet. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it was pretty true. That, and, and it's true Stay with me here. But it's true. If God really has your heart, does he have your wallet? Yes. So if he doesn't have your wallet, does God really have your heart? No. Well, he's got some of my heart. Well, I obey God in other 58 areas, so I'm good. Is it about obeying God in some things or all things? All things. And really, one application we can make here is obviously giving and tithes and offerings and this and that. And it says in Malachi, and I know it's Old Testament, it goes to, to the, uh, the, the, the Israelites, but will a man rob God? Where it says, here and have you robbed me in tithes and offerings. We do rob God when we don't give him what is rightfully his. When we don't give him the first fruits, and it's very easy for us to do, and it's very easy for us to justify it, isn't it? It is. But this is a common sin, but that's part of the old nature. Look, the new man should not steal. It's not just about, well, I actually went and robbed someone of, of their property. It also can be talking about God. We wouldn't like it if someone stole from us, would we? Anybody be happy with it? Now, some people would be like, I want them to get rid of that car so I can get an insurance claim and all that kind of stuff. But we wouldn't be happy if someone stole from us. If we're a business owner, we wouldn't be too happy if those employees that were working under us were stealing for us for months and months and months, would we? We'd put an end to it. So how do you think God feels when we steal from him? When we take what is rightfully his? So to me, and I'm not, I'm not let me try to say this in the right way, but again, that's, that's living the old nature, right? And not the new nature. 
And as this whole series has suggested, if you're, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, you're new, you've been redeemed, you've been set free, uh, accepted, chosen, all those things that we talked about in chapter 1. So really, if you're a true child of God, authentically uh, genuine in your Christian faith, then God has all of you, not just some of you. And a lot of times in churches, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's, I guess, a struggle for pastors trying to encourage people with this. God just doesn't want some of the keys. He wants them all. I don't have my keys with me, and I, and I think I've referenced this before, but it's like having a bunch of keys on a keychain, and, and we kind of take it out and like, all right, God, you can have this key, this key, this key, but not these. God wants it all. And it goes back to a subject of control, which we're going to hit on in a couple weeks on Sunday morning. But we are trying to control things that are not ours to control. Well, God, I really have to pay this bill. Well, yes, we're supposed to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but unto God, what? The things that are God's. So a Christian, a child of God, should replace stealing, any kind of stealing, with work and giving. Now, there's three quick things I want to make reference to, and then I'll go on. I don't want to labor this point. But again, this was a common sin. This new man does not steal. Look at the application Paul gives. First of all, there is a need for honest work, right? <laughs> there is a need for honest work because we are created to work. Work is a gift from God. We shouldn't be lazy all the time. A lot of times we see someone else that's just lazy, we get, we get upset. We are not designed to just be lazy and mooch off everyone else. We are designed to work. That's part of it. Uh, another thing, number two, the goodness of work. And really, uh, we can reference this, but we don't have time for that. But if you don't work, the Bible says, what? You shouldn't eat. But look, let's look at America. We have a lot of people that don't work, and they still eat, right? A lot of people. But work is talking about it, it, what he's referencing here. Look what he says. Uh, let him stole still no more. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good. It is good to work with your hands. It is good to labor. It is good to work because of what it produces. And then, third thing, that he may get, or sorry, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So there's a need for honest work. There's the goodness of work. And then thirdly, we work in order to give. But a lot of times in our society, let's just talk about our society as Americans, it almost kind of goes against our nature. I don't work to give. I work to get, right? I work to get more so I can get more and buy more and do more. But the reality of it, and really what scriptures teaches us, and we don't have enough time to go through all the scriptures, especially in the New Testament about this, but the more you get, you know what a Christian should do with it? The more you should give. The more you get, the more you should give. I like what John Wesley says, an old uh, preacher from the past, he says, listen to this, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. That really should be evident of every Christian. One preacher said this, there are a few options regarding work. You can steal to get, you can work to get for yourself, or you can work to get in order to give. And I like that. We should work to get in order to give. And that's what, again, Paul is referencing here. Work to get, but so you can give out. To those that are in need, you ever met someone in need? Think all of us, and you're like, I'm that person in need. Maybe you are. But it's not about you always mooching off of everyone else, because I've met people like that, that are always struggling, and I, and I get that, and there's, there's, there's tough seasons, but it's not always about us just receiving, is it? No, it's about us receiving so we can give. It's about that reciprocal, uh, and being reciprocal of grace, or a conduit of grace, as I've talked about before. As, it, as grace flows in, grace should flow out, Right? And we should dispense that grace to other people. People, people whatever that word is, people. Um, but in this, in this passage, labor, it's talking about work. It's talking about exerting yourself to the point of exhaustion. This is the kind of work, uh, working heart that God commands those who used to steal to have. Paul's idea is that we should work so we can give, and the purpose of getting becomes giving. And I might have this in your notes, I, I can't remember, but a truly committed follower of Jesus will learn to be a radical giver. A truly committed follower of Jesus will learn to be a radical giver. And there's a great example of this in the book of Luke. 
Anybody know the man that became a radical giver once he got saved? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He loved to steal from people. He loved to cheat people. But when you read that story, I think it's Luke 16 or Luke 19. When you read that story, what did Zacchaeus do after he got saved? He repaid everyone he stole from. First of all, it says that he gave to the poor half of his income. I'm not saying you have to do that. But then he repaid all that he stole, not just what he stole, but four times what he stole. That's insane. (laughs) But he did that because when he got saved, Jesus had all of them. (laughs) But how am I going to pay for anything? How am I going to take care of myself? Do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God can take care of you? You see, it comes to a matter of control, it comes to a matter of trust, it comes to a matter of obedience. And the truth is, and I know it's something that we can get quiet on, but, and this is convicting for myself, but every Christian should be a radical giver. You should. Why? What has Jesus given you? Life, but more importantly, if you're a Christian, salvation. The greatest gift in the world. He's given you, in a sense, an escape clause from hell if you accept the gift of salvation. So he has given us the greatest gift in the world. Since he has given us the greatest gift in the world, and we've received that gift if you're a child of God, we shouldn't just, oh man, this is great, thank you. What should we do? Tell others. We should be radical givers, not just in our money necessarily, but in everything. Are we telling others about Jesus Christ? Well, I post some things on Facebook every once in a while. Well, we do that because it's easy. I'm guilty of that. But a Christian should be a radical giver, radical giver of our time, of our resources, of our talents, of everything. And really, this is convicting. It should be convicting. Because the old man doesn't live like that. The old man lives for themselves. The new man lives for who? Christ. The new man should live for Christ, So it's very telling when we're still more concerned about ourselves than we are about Christ. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about the church. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about whatever it is, advancing God's kingdom. What's winning out is the old nature and not the new nature. As a Christian, our identity is in Christ. And again, this should be the mark of every Christian. And the story of Zacchaeus is an amazing story because it's it's a remarkable story about grace got a hold of his life. He went from being a taker and was transformed into a giver. Everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people are waiting for the next thing to happen. Well, once this takes place, I'll start doing this, right? You ever done that? You ever heard that? You ever said that? Once I get these things in order, I will start doing this for the church. Once I take care of this, I will give. Once I, there's always a once I, once I, once I, right? But what happens if down the road something else happens? Because life happens, right? Life happens that rocks us all, or knocks us off our feet sometimes. And, and we might have planned, to, let's just talk about the money. We might have planned to give a bunch of money when things got better. But what happens if they don't get better for a while? What happens if they get worse? Well, when it gets better, it's always win, win, win. But is that obedience to God? No. It goes back to that stealing. That's really taking from God what is rightfully his. And you've got to think about this. God is a very gracious God, is he not? I am thankful for God's grace. I am thankful for God's goodness because I don't deserve most of what he has given me, and neither do you. But since God has given us so much, what should we do? Hoard it for ourselves? Give it to others. And again, it's convicting because Paul moves from who we are to how we're supposed to live. New creation, a child of God, lives like you've been changed, like you've been transformed. So replace stealing with work and giving. The fourth thing, verse 29 and 30. Replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, encouraging, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Corrupt communication. Not only obscene vulgarity, 
but also slanderous and contemptuous talk. The word foul or corrupt here is used often in the New Testament to refer to rotten fruit or rotten fish. Both are appropriate pictures of sinful speech. It's rotten, it's putrid, it's disgusting. Look, corrupt talk does not nourish you. It makes you sick. So Paul is saying, hey, the old man, the man before you got saved, uses corrupt language, vulgar language. The new man, once you're saved, you don't talk like that. Instead of tearing down people, what are you supposed to do? Build people up. But what do we do as Christians? I don't like that person, so I'm going to tear him down. So who are we living? We're being more of the old man instead of the new man. And people are like, well, well, I'm getting better. But really, once you've been saved, once you've been redeemed, you've got to learn to put away that lifestyle, right? You've got to learn to, way, learn to put away that speech. How do you do it? By, by putting in things that are good. It goes back to Philippians chapter 4. Thinking on things that are true, that are honest, that are lovely, that are just, that are pure. You know, if you're always hanging around friends that are very vulgar, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be vulgar. So maybe it's replacing your friends. If you're always watching shows that are always full of vulgarity, which almost every show out there is full of vulgarity, you know what you should do? Replace that show with something else. But I can't do that. That's my show. That's my movie. And look, I'm just as guilty as the next person about this. But a Christian, a child of God, shouldn't have that in your nature. If, if I'm not feeding my flesh with that, I'm not going to talk like that. If those words have never been put in, they're not going to come out, are they? But if they've been put in and put in and put in put in put in, put in they're going to come out. I mean, even thinking about raising our kids, Nate's just not going to say a vulgar cuss word just because he wants to say it. He's going to say it because he heard it somewhere, probably from school, probably. <laughs> but what I'm saying is you're not going to just say it. It's because you've heard it. It's because it's been put inside of you. So the new man, a child of God, has to learn to get that corruption out of you and replace it with edifying talk. Christians are horrible, again, at tearing one another down, aren't they? Should we get the mic and just talk, go around and ask about your stories about that? No, we're not going to do that, but we've all done that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 the Bible says, O generation of vipers, this is good, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? They were trying to, you know, they're, they're evil, corrupt people, and they're trying to speak good things, speaking out of both sides of their mouth. But let's, let's switch this verse around. How can ye, who are supposed to be good, speak evil things? It shouldn't be. I expect a non-believer, an uh, unsaved person, to talk like an unsaved person, right? But I expect a Christian to talk like a Christian. To act like a Christian. So again, again, I know it's convicting, but if, and it's hard. Trust me, it's hard. Especially in the workplace. You're always hearing people say all kinds of stuff. It, it's there. So how do we replace it? We can't just replace all of them. We can't necessarily get a new job sometimes, but what are we feeding? Are we feeding our mind with God's Word? Because the more God's Word you put in your mind, you put in your heart, it's going to be flushed out. Corrupt talk does not nourish you. It makes you sick. And if you're a Christian, certain things shouldn't come out of your mouth. But oftentimes Christians are worse about this than the unsaved. I read Augustine, St. Augustine, who lived in the past. Um, he had a sign above his dining room wall, which read, which is really good. He said, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. That's pretty good, but how often do we gossip? That's part of that corrupt language. Look, the negative here, because Paul is referencing a negative and he has a positive. The negative is corrupt speech, but the positive is edification. That's about building up. The new man knows how to watch his tongue, speaking only what is good for necessary edification, desiring to impart grace on all who will hear. Paul says in verse 30, he gives a warning, grieve not the Holy Spirit 
This warning is tied back to verse 29, but it's also tied uh, to verse 31 and 32. The Holy Spirit is grieved, which means to be vexed or pained or offended or saddened when we do things that are not pleasing to Him. Anything that's inconsistent with the Spirit's nature grieves Him. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said about this passage. He says, I think I now see the Spirit of God grieving when you are sitting down to read a novel and there is your Bible unread. You have no time for prayer, but the Spirit sees you very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him. He continues, the Holy Spirit's grief is not of a petty, oversensitive nature. He is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes. He is saddened basically because he knows what sin will do to us. The misery of sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows and our sins. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. Look, the new man should not grieve the Holy Spirit, knowing that he is our seal, both in the sense of identification, identification and protection. And then quickly, moving on, verse 31 and 32, replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Remember the admonition back in verse 22 where it says, put off the old man. Paul tells us some practical things to put off. Bitterness. This is referring to resentful attitudes. It's that man who is resentful, cynical, unpleasant. Bitterness refers to settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. Somebody does something we don't like, and so we harbor ill will towards them. He says, let all bitterness and wrath Wrath is talking about anger and rage and fury. Little bitterness and wrath and anger, talking about hostility and clamor and evil speaking. It's talking about speaking, um, uh, it's talking about slandering, it's talking about arguing, quarreling, brawling, malice. It suggests slander that is hurtful and injurious speech. Listen to this. Bitterness leads to wrath which is the explosion on the outside of the feelings on the inside. Wrath and anger often lead to brawling or clamor or blasphemy, which is evil speaking. The first is fighting with fists and the second is fighting with words. But let me ask a question. Is this behavior that should come out of a Christian? No. So Paul says, put away, (laughs) get rid of it. Get rid of the bitterness, get rid of the wrath, get rid of the anger, get rid of the slander, the clamor, the evil speaking, all of that. Put it away. Put it away with what? Verse 32. And be ye kind one to another. But I don't like them. I don't like what they did to me. I don't like what they did to my kid. Be kind one to another. I'm not saying this is easy, but it's what we're supposed to do tenderhearted. And then this is key. We're going to hit on this here in a couple weeks. Forgiving one another. Ooh, that's a whole series right there. Again, you don't know what they did to me. But a Christian, should a Christian be known for harboring bitterness and wrath and anger? Or should a Christian be known for kindness and forgiveness? Kindness and forgiveness. But listen as he closes. This is, this is key. This is important. This last phrase, this is powerful. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Listen, to not forgive is to not understand or appreciate Jesus' forgiveness. It isn't that we must forgive because Jesus will forgive. That's that's true. But listen, we forgive because he has forgiven us. The reason we forgive is because he has forgiven us. And think of all the wrong that you have done. All the sins that you have committed against God. And yet he still chose to forgive you. The reason we forgive 
is because Christ was willing to forgive us. So what do you wear? Are you truly dressed in his righteousness? Are you clothed in his righteousness? If you're a child of God, have you put on the new man and put off the old man? Have you taken off the grave clothes? Here's the core truth. Believers are called to live out their new identity in Christ with a lifestyle that is different from the world and different from their pre-Christian past. Live out your new identity as a new creation in Christ for the good of others and the glory of God. And I want to close with this last little illustration. John Stott, famous preacher of the past, he said this, I find it helpful to think in these terms. Our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my, of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. Volume two of my biography opened up with my resurrection. My old life is finished a new life in God has begun. He says this, we are simply called to reckon this, not to pretend it, but to realize it. It is a fact, and we have to lay hold of it. We have to let our minds play upon these truths. We have to meditate upon them until we grasp them fir firmly. We have to keep saying to ourselves, volume one is closed. It's done. You are now living in volume two. And if you're saved tonight, you're living in volume two. It is inconceivable that you should reopen volume one. It is not impossible, but it is inconceivable. But how often do we do that? Volume one has been closed, but oh, let me open back that book because I, I, I just, I don't want to let go. You know, it, it's foolish and we know that, but we do it. And I know it's hard teaching and preaching tonight, but Paul is addressing this church because he knows the struggles we, they had and it's the same struggles we have. These five sins were rampant in their society, but they're rampant in our life. We have lying lips instead of speaking truth. We're angry and we don't deal with it. We keep stealing or taking things that aren't ours, or we can go on and on about that. We're not getting things and working to, to give, but we're working to get. We're not getting rid of the corrupt communication. We're using that corrupt communication and justifying it. Well, that's just part of my old flesh. Well, yeah, get rid of it. It's been crucified with Christ, so let it die. We're supposed to be edifiers, encouragers. We're supposed to get rid of bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking and that slander. We've all been probably slandered against. I have. It's not fun. But a Christian shouldn't act like that. But we do that because we like to justify things. But a Christian should be known for kindness, for forgiveness, because that's who Jesus is. And if you're a child of God, as it says back in chapter 1, you're joint heirs. You're connected with him. So live like you're connected to him. This is our identity. Our identity is in Christ. So live like you're in Christ and crucified from the flesh.